Okay, the third genre is wisdom literature, which is a subset of poetic. So wisdom literature has all of the characteristic of poetic, but it has its own unique characteristics. So let's take a look at wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is a subset of poetic, but it has some unique features to it. Again, when we talk about wisdom literature in the Bible, we're talking about Hebrew wisdom literature. The Egyptians had wisdom literature. The Mesopotamians had uh, wisdom literature. It's different from Hebrew wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the Bible has some unique features that are unique to the Bible. There's a couple of words we need to take a close look at. Somebody look, see, where do we leave off? Who's the next one to read? Jim, I think Jim, you want to look up Exodus 31? The Hebrew word for wisdom that occurs somewhat frequently, I think 45 times in the Old Testament, and for most of you that means nothing, hakma. When you say hakma, you have to hak. Like you're gonna, like you gotta clear your throat. That's how the, the Hebrew hey is pronounced. It's a guttural. It's called a guttural. So don't just say hakma. You have to say hakma. That's wisdom. We have a description of hakma, and hakma occurs in Exodus 31, 6 through 11. Jim, do you got, we won't have you read the whole thing, but read enough into it so that you. And behold, I myself have appointed for him, Olmi, the son of Shir Amah, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill. Skill, that's hakma. Skill, get that. Keep reading. They make all that I have commanded you. Now, this is the building of the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to construct. Moses is gathering together different craftsmen, and these different craftsmen in different areas, and this passage describes some of those areas, construction areas, and their skill or their ability is described as hakma. Keep reading. Okay. And then he's describing what he's going to build. Tent of meeting, and the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat, and on it, and all the furniture of the tent. So it, it involves carpentry, it, it involves weaving, it involves tapestry, metallurgy, all these different skills. Keep reading. The table also, and its utensils, and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering. Also, with all its utensils, and the labor, and its stand, the woven garments as well, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest. So these, and if you keep reading, it talks about these people having skill in all of these specific crafts, if you will, or areas of construction. And in their description, the word hakma is used. That's the same word that the, the Bible elsewhere utilizes. And again, remember I, I mentioned that theological words come out of just everyday usage? The everyday usage for the word hakma is a skill of any sort. It can be woodworking, it can be metallurgy, it can be whatever skill. And then we attach to that everyday idea a spiritual idea when it comes to a theological term. So when it's used in terms of living life, it has the idea, the special skill, or the special skill in living. That's wisdom. And that's how it's used in Proverbs, exactly. So that's the meaning of hakma. That's what wisdom is. It's the skill to live life. And in Hebrew thinking, it's the skill to live life successfully or fruitfully. Hakma. Now, there's another word. I'm not going to look at it in detail here because we're going to speak specifically of a kind of wisdom 
Sometimes it's translated, and most commonly it's translated proverb, a mashal. A mashal. But the word is much broader than just a proverb in the way that we understand it. I'll give you the details of that when we talk about parable. We'll come back to that Hebrew word. So, mashal, kind of a broad category of proverb. It can be all the way from just a single little short saying all the way to the idea of an extended story, like a parable. In fact, the same word for parable is mashal. So that's Hebrew wisdom literature. And obviously the currents, we have those that are more proverbial in the sense of short, little, pithy sayings. Those are the proverbs. Then we have some that are more reflective. In other words, they give you more of a kind of a philosophical flavor to them. That's the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. Those are books specifically that are both poetic and more specifically wisdom books. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And there's individual proverbs elsewhere. And when we talk about parables, parables are a form of mashal, which would fit under wisdom literature. And the individual proverbs can be found in the Old Testament. And we can find some examples of proverbs in the New Testament or wise sayings. And we have quotes also from the Old Testament. We won't look these up for the sake of time, but Matthew 11.30 is an example in the New Testament. I think this one's by the Lord Jesus himself. And Galatians 6, 7. Let's look at the characteristics of wisdom literature. Number one, this is practical advice. And obviously, practical advice on how to live a fruitful, successful, a happy, a blessed life. Practical advice. So these are very practical. They deal with the economy. In other words, dealing with money. They deal with relationships. Dealing with people. They deal with speech. All the practical areas. In the the Jewish culture, the wise man was the the man that uh, was educated. The man that was at not only intelligence, but knew how to utilize the knowledge that he possessed. And the wise man was able to teach others. He had the ability to make good choices. So it's an excellent book to go through with young children so that they can learn how to make good choices. And they can visualize it and they can see. There's lots of examples. In other words, you do this, then you can expect this. If you're lazy, you can expect the negative. You can expect poverty. Practical advice. In fact, associated with not only the word, but in the Hebrew culture, it involved craftsmanship because of the word hakma. So it forms the foundation not just for living and reacting in a culture, but it involved also, it's the foundation for all creative work, the foundation for creativity in all of the areas of crafts. Secondly, and this is very, very important, you can misinterpret if you overlook this characteristic. These, secondly, are general truths. And what I mean by that, they're not absolutes in the sense that when it says this is going to happen, this is the outcome, this is the outcome that you can normally expect all things equal. The example that I like to use that sometimes puts people or parents under a lot of guilt, you raise up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he grows old, what? He will he will not depart from it. Well, I know Christian parents that, uh, in fact, one I have in mind, homeschooled, so they made every attempt to create a good teaching environment. Christian curriculum did everything, which you would say, right in terms of parenting. Certainly, you know, being human, I'm sure they made mistakes. Their kid ended up in prison. Did God fail? 
Well, the answer is no. These are general truths. In other words, if you do all that, this is in general the outcome that you can expect. They're like uh, statistically. In other words, statistically you do these things, this is statistically the outcome that you should expect. They're not absolutes in the sense that everything is guaranteed. And in the case of raising children, they have their own volitions, they have their own will, they have their own sin nature. And in spite of what a parent may do, if they did the best that they can and the child went astray, the parent may not be the cause. Does that make sense? So these are general truths. And that's kind of the glaring example that I like to use there. The other way also works as well. You might, you know, I grew up with an alcoholic dad and all the statistics say that I should have failed in life. Raised by a single mother. All You know, the opposite can also come out. But statistically... These are general truths in that sense that this is what you would expect. These are not promises. The book of Proverbs are not promises in that you say, well, I did these things, God, how come I'm still poor? There's some Proverbs that seem to indicate that you live a godly life. You should have a successful life. Well, I've lived a godly life and I'm persecuted. What's going wrong here? Okay, so they're general truths. They're not promises. And thirdly, in the biblical proverb or in the biblical wisdom literature, you always have a moral aspect or a spiritual aspect. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have that phrase over and over. You always have the fear of the Lord aspect, the moral aspect in these proverbs. So those are your main characteristics. And like I said, these are your basis for all that goes on in culture, Proverbs, all the area that everybody experiences suffering. Ecclesiastes, all the scientific, the philosophical, all of those areas is touched on on Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon, the areas, the very practical areas of marriage and sex. Psalms, the, the major area of worship, it's the worship guidebook of all of the Bible, Proverbs, all of social life and vocations and work. So you have a basis and a foundation for guidance in the wisdom literature for all of culture. Even, and by the way, in the writings, remember there's there's three parts, there's the, the law and the prophets and the writings that are referred to by Jesus himself in the New Testament. Daniel is in the writings. Daniel is not only a prophetic book, but Daniel also is what what we might consider a wisdom book in that it gives some national strategies that can be gained from Daniel. So that's poetic and that's wisdom literature. We'll pick up with prophetic next week. We're getting close to the end of our course. We looked at special hermeneutics last time, and we will be continuing looking at special hermeneutics. Early on, we talked about the general principles that are applicable to any area of Scripture, any verse, any passage from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Those are general principles that apply broadly. And special hermeneutics deals with special issues and particularly special genres. There are different types of literature in Scripture. And because of their special unique characteristics, there's things that you have to take into account in addition to the general principles. So these are on top of all of the principles we talked about in the early portion of the class. And last time we looked at narrative literature. It's been a good portion of our session on narrative. Second hour we looked at poetic or poetry, poetic literature. The main emphasis on narrative, I said, always remember when we talk about biblical narrative, it is historical narrative. When we talked about poetry, the main focus that I mentioned there And the unique feature of biblical poetry is the parallelism. 
major characteristic. Take into account parallelism, not rhyme. And associated with poetry, a subset we concluded last time on wisdom literature. So wisdom literature has all of the characteristics of poetic, but it has a few other characteristics that are unique to it as well. The main uh, characteristic that I'd like to reiterate is these are not absolutes. For example, Proverbs are not absolutes. They are general truths in the sense that you might even say statistically, if you do this, more than likely this is the outcome. So they're not absolutes, they're not promises. Now, there are some Proverbs that are absolutes, but what makes them absolutes is not because they're Proverbs, but because you can find perhaps a statement that basically summarizes the same idea somewhere else outside of wisdom literature. That makes it an absolute. But by themselves, the Proverbs and wisdom literature deal with general truths. So after wisdom literature, we'll spend a good portion of today, probably all the first hour, on prophecy, prophetic literature, which by and large, prophetic literature is unique to scripture entirely. You don't find this genre in very many other places, except in the cults, perhaps, false religion. So, prophetic literature is unique to to the Bible. You find narrative, you find poetic, you find wisdom in other areas of literature, but in general, prophetic is unique to Scripture. So, let's take a look at prophecy or prophetic literature. Right off the bat, let me ask you a question. Who makes the first prophetic statement of all of Scripture? Think through it. If you consider the record recorded by Moses, but not Moses as a personage. Through the writer of Moses. Yeah, Genesis. Genesis, yeah, Genesis. And where specifically? 315. Even before that. Even before Genesis 3.15, exactly. But Genesis 3.15 is pretty early. There's only two more chapters. (laughs) Try chapter 2, verse 17. That's a prophetic statement. In the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of good and evil, you will, what, in the future? Surely die. You shall die dead, literally. You translate it literally. It's a Hebrew... Infinitive absolute. So God himself makes the first prediction, the first prophetic statement. Who's the first prophet of the Bible? Human prophet of the Bible. You want to say Isaiah? You know that's not right. (laughs) Yeah, it's way earlier than Isaiah. Earlier than Moses. Look at the words of Jesus. Remember when he talks about Jerusalem killing the prophets all the way from to Zechariah? Abel. Jesus himself. Yeah, when he says in Luke eleven fifty and 51, he mentions the prophets being killed by Jerusalem from Abel to Zechariah. So the first prophet goes all the way to the first family of God's creation. So this is an important area that spans virtually the whole Bible. And obviously the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation, which is prophetic in nature. You got it there, Mark? You want to read it? Yeah, 50 and 51. Luke 11. uh, In order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah. So Jesus includes Abel as a prophet. So let's talk a little bit about the importance. That already gives you the importance, just broadly speaking there, just the fact that it begins in the second chapter of the Bible and doesn't end till we get to the last chapter of the Bible. 
But it is important for several reasons, partly what we've already said, but because of the abundance of prophetic literature and prophetic genre in all of Scripture itself. One writer says that one-fourth of all the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic. Now, there's a lot of prophetic literature that has already been fulfilled in time. When those prophetic writings were written, one-fourth of all of Scripture was prophetic. J. Barton Payne actually gives specific number of verses, 8,382 prophetic passages out of 31,124 verses. And if you do the math there, that's 26.83%. 26.83% of the Bible. So it's very frequent in terms of what we have in Scripture. And what he's speaking of in terms of prophetic, it uh, is broad in terms of what we would classify as prophetic material. So I mentioned narrative is the most common. Poetic is second in frequency in Scripture. And prophetic would uh, obviously be third. So there's more, there's more individual books that come under the prophetic heading than any other book of Scripture. Sixteen out of the 39 Old Testament books are prophetic in nature and predominantly use prophetic genre. And you're familiar with the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, then we have 12 minor prophets, that's 16 out of 39. Also, 23 of the 27 New Testament books contain prophecy. They're not necessarily prophetic by genre, but they contain prophecy. And again, the one prophetic book, the book of Revelation, which is predominantly prophetic. The term itself, prophet, is very frequent in in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word nabi, over 300 times. Prophetes in the New Testament, over 100 times. So just the sheer abundance makes prophetic material very important. So it's important that we understand some of its unique characteristics. Secondly, Man cannot predict the future, but number two, God is the only source. So this makes prophetic material important, the source itself. God is the only source of prophetic material. Now, you might statistically be able to see trends and movements in certain directions, but in terms of predicting specific events, specific individuals, specific movements, only God can do that. He's the only one that has a omniscient view of all knowledge. So God is the only source. The liberals attribute more to the prophets than the prophets themselves claim, and certainly what Scripture gives to them. The liberals see prophets like Isaiah as social reformers, as individuals that uh, were innovative. They're innovative, creative thinkers. But that's not the case at all. Everything that the prophets get is given to them from God himself. We'll see that by the nature of the material when we get that far into the material here. So they're not, they're not social reformers. They're not innovators. They are actually simply repeating certain things that are already in scripture. And I'll identify those when we talk more about the function of the prophet. So God is the only source. Thirdly, it's important because we have divine interpretation of prophetic material. Not always, but this is very common in prophetic material. Interpretation. God is the interpreter and he gives to the prophets interpretation. And it's primarily interpretation in relationship to historical events, how they fit into God's plan. And the prophets expound upon that. Fourthly, 
We have prophetic material gives us ultimate destinies. We have the end of God's plan. We have the direction of world history. We, we know where everything is headed. That's because of prophetic material. Man himself cannot predict these things. In fact, some of these things are denied by man because they're somewhat inconceivable to the human mind and thinking. And fifthly, and not necessarily the last thing, but the last one I have on my list here, prophetic material is important because it divides theology. And if you ask a person their eschatology, you have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from theologically. Now, it's unfortunate that it divides, and it divides partly because prophetic material, in some cases, is is not crystal clear. It's not laid out like epistolary material. And as a result, we have a lot of differences of understanding in terms of prophetic material. The basic difference between the view that we will take in terms of prophetic material and everyone else is hermeneutical. Is hermeneutical. We will come from a particular approach of Bible prophecy that is dependent on a consistent hermeneutic. And what I'm talking about is the differences between amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. Those are the three prominent views on eschatology. Amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. They all pertain to the millennium and the millennium with respect to the coming of the Messiah or the coming of Jesus Christ. Amillennialism says Christ came and already established the kingdom and the church itself is the expression of that kingdom. There's some varieties of it. Some see the kingdom on earth. Some see the kingdom in heaven. That's amillennialism. Postmillennialism says that the church will overcome the world and become greater and greater to the point that the kingdom will be established. And then after the kingdom, Jesus Christ will return. That's postmillennialism. And will reward the church for its good work. Well, how's the church doing? World War One and World War Two almost brought a death to postmillennialism. There's been a revival of it in in these latter days. Premillennialism says that Jesus Christ comes and He is the only one that can, and when He does come, He will establish the kingdom. So He comes before. That's why it's premillennial. To hold to the premillennial view, you have to take a literal approach. And what I mean literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, what we've been talking about in this course, if you are consistent in interpreting prophetic passages, you'll end up with a premillennial perspective. Because the only way that you can hold to amillennialism and or postmillennialism is you have to depart from a literal approach. In fact, Dwight Pentecost, he says the same thing in his text. But the basic difference between the premillennial and all other views, amillennial, postmillennial, is the hermeneutical approach. Whether you take a literal or a non-literal, and amillennial, postmillennial has to depart from the literal approach. They have to spiritualize passages. Would it be true to say that these two approaches, uh, they depart from the literal approach for all your hermeneutics? No, no, no. Generally inconsistent. They're generally, in most cases, not always, but in most cases, they would take the same approach except when it comes to prophetic material. So, this is an important area of hermeneutics. This is an important area when you come to dealing with prophetic material because it's a divider in terms of lots of theologies. So that's its importance. Let me give you a little history, and I gave you some hints of that history already. The history of prophetic material, number one, all the way back pre-flood. There are prophets before the Genesis flood. 
Two of them are specifically identified by name. I gave you the one, Abel. And it's Jesus himself that identifies Abel as a prophet in that Luke 11, 50-51 passage. Enoch also is called a prophet in uh, Jude, verses 14 and 15. And not only does Jude identify Enoch as a prophet, but he gives a summary of that prophecy that Enoch gave in his day that is not contained in the book of Genesis. He says that Enoch essentially predicted the coming of a Messiah and coming of judgment. I'll let you look that passage up. So there are prophets that are very early. Now, obviously, we don't have a record of their prophecies other than that summary that Jude gives us. So there are pre-flood prophets. At Israel's founding, the predominant prophet that is identified is Moses himself. And Moses predicts that there will come a prophet like himself. Moses, in Deuteronomy, also gives us a test actually a series of tests, to be able to identify a true prophet, which implies there are false prophets. He gives tests for a prophet, Deuteronomy 18, and also in Deuteronomy 13. Now, some of you had said Abraham, and you were correct. Abimelech, in Genesis 20, verse 7, calls Abraham a prophet. And in a broad sense, Abraham was a prophet. So these are all prophets preceding the nation of Israel's founding. Another category, number three, there are prophets during the kingdom and preceding the kingdom. One of the main ones would be Samuel himself. Another major prophet during the kingdom before it divided would be Nathan. Samuel and Nathan. Also mentioned, not as prominent, is Gad. He's mentioned in uh, 1 Samuel 22. And there's uh, an Ahijah mentioned, another prophet, in 1 Kings 11. These would be prophets during the era from Saul to Solomon. And even beginning with uh, Nathan and even beginning with Samuel, we see a function of the prophet in terms of confronting kings. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But they especially begin to do that when the kingdom begins to decline. We have people like Elijah. We have people like Elisha. And then we have all of the writing prophets. And there are several that are mentioned besides Elijah and Elisha and the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Twelve Minor Prophets. There's several others that are identified. Shemaiah is one. Azariah, Jehu, not the king, but in this context is a prophet. Hanani, Jehaziel, Micaiah, Eliezer, a different Zechariah, Obed, Huldah, Uriah. These are all mentioned during this period of decline of the kingdom. And there's a reason why God raises up the prophets during this period of time. I'll get into that in a moment. I'm just kind of laying out broadly the history of prophets. Number five, after the kingdom collapses, the nation goes into exile, then we have some other prophets, and then we have prophets after the exile. Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the prophets that prophesy primarily during that period of time. And then the prophets after would be Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, three minor prophets. And there's a distinct addition to these prophetic works that are slightly different, uh, not entirely, from the ones during this period of decline of the kingdom. I'll bring that out as well. There's a period you could describe as a cessation of prophets. We have a period of silence after Malachi. A period of about 400 years. No prophetic voice. No word from God. 
nation under discipline still, awaiting which prophet? Who's the next prophet? John. John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the New Testament, we have the arrival of John the Baptist, who is clearly identified as a prophet. And, as Beverly points out, Jesus Christ would be considered a prophet. And then we have the primarily apostles. There's others as well, but there's a prophetic voice in the apostles as well. Ephesians 4.11, in the context of spiritual gifts or gifted men, in that context, God has given some as what? Apostles. Prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. So there's New Testament prophets. So that's a brief overview of the history of prophets. And amongst some of these, we have prophetic writings. And amongst some of that, we have the prophetic genre utilized. So that's the history. And we've somewhat summarized the occurrence or what books are predominantly prophetic. We have preaching prophets that would include people like Abel and Enoch and the Isaiahs and actually most of the prophets. They were preaching prophets that preached to the time of which they they lived. Some of them would also be writing prophets. In a broad sense, when the Bible speaks of the law and the prophets and the writings, it's predominantly speaking of and including historical prophets. So the writers of books like Joshua, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles would be considered prophets. But they would be considered historical prophets. These don't necessarily fall into the genre, but all the same, in a broad sense, you would consider them prophetic prophets. And when we talk about the nature of prophets or the characteristics, I'll bring that idea out. Does that make sense? So just that division. The law, the law is what? Pentateuch, first five books. Prophets, well, he's not skipping to Isaiah here and leaving out Joshua, Judges, etc. It includes, and in the Jewish thinking, whoever the writers were of those books, and it's not clear as to the authorship of most of those books, these historical books, but they were considered prophets. So when it says the law, Pentateuch, prophets, it would include everything else except more than likely the poetic books, which are the writings. And I think I mentioned last time that uh, Daniel is included in the writings. So it is included in, in wisdom literature. But then we have the specific writing prophets, and it's mainly the writing prophets that utilize this unique genre with the characteristics that we'll talk about. The writing prophets would include the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the twelve minor prophets, beginning with Hosea all the way through Malachi, and the writing prophets would include the one New Testament Prophecy, the book of Revelation by John the Apostle. You see these distinctions? The preaching prophets would be some of those that I mentioned that you don't have that in terms of writing during the kingdom period, and it would also go pre-flood. These are prophets that preached to their own people in their own day and was inspired but not canonized and not part of Scripture in terms of God's revelation to us. And then the historical prophets, which included a historical interpretation of events. And then we have the writing prophets, and these are the ones that we will look at in terms of genre. The writing prophets. And you find the genre elsewhere, but predominantly in the writing prophets.
So that's the occurrence. Number four, let's look at the function of prophets. There's at least a six-fold function of the prophets. In general, number one is they are proclaimers of God's word in a very broad sense. This is the primary task of the prophet. Primary task is to speak God's word. And they speak for God, sometimes to their own people, and sometimes more broadly by speaking and recording their message in writing. And what they do is they are explaining how God is working in the time of the prophet, but also how God is working in history. They raise people's awareness of God's speaking. So, in a sense, all writers of Scripture are prophets, in a very broad sense, proclaiming God's Word. Secondly, they anointed and judged kings, and this function came about historically at the beginning of the kingdom era. It was the prophet that identified them. And we see that with Samuel when he identifies Saul and he anoints Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we have the anointing of Saul. First nine verses. Samuel also, God guides him to David. Remember he goes through the brothers in the first six. David is out. He's the lowest in seniority in the family. He's the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep while the family is gathered to select the next king. And Samuel goes through the six sons and says, no, this is not the one. Do you have any more sons? Yeah, we have one, but he's just a punk kid. Call him in. This is the one that Samuel anoints. That's David. Now, he doesn't assume the kingship until much later, but he's anointed very early. So they anoint, but they also judge kings. They confront kings. Saul was confronted by Samuel. David was confronted by whom? Nathan. Dangerous thing to do is to confront a king. In fact, you better be a prophet, and even then your life is at risk. So Nathan uses the tactic of use using a, a parable to confront King David. And during the decline of the, the kingdom, you see several prophets confronting. In fact, that's one of the things Isaiah is doing in his writing, Jeremiah. These prophets are confronting the leadership, the, the king, basically. So they judge kings. They anoint and they judge. Judge in the sense of exposing God's perspective on their rulership. So that's the second function of a prophet. And a third, I've already mentioned, they're writers of Scripture. And in that broad sense, you could consider all writers of Scripture as prophets in that broad sense. I've already mentioned the historical books as well as the prophetic books. They're interpreting the sovereignty of God over historical processes, historical events. They interpret political events, they even interpret uh, climatic, climate events, climate-related events. They measure it based on what Moses says in Deuteronomy 28. It's very common. We'll talk some more about that. They also interpret the rise of enemies and adversaries, and they interpret the reasons for that. So they're writers and interpreters of Scripture. Fourthly, they are enforcers of the covenants, the enforced covenants. When I mentioned they don't innovate and they're not reformers, what they are doing is everything that they say is based on what God has already set forth in covenants and particularly what God has set forth in the Mosaic Covenant. So what they do by enforcing covenants is they bring to the awareness, particularly of kings, how either the king or the nation is violating the covenants. So it's through the prophets that God reminds the people that if they want to be blessed, they have to obey the law. 
And if they disobey the law, then there are consequences. It's the prophets that bring that out. So they're enforcers of the, the covenants. And along those lines, in terms of covenants, they a, a frequent theme is they show God's faithfulness in history. In other words, God always has kept his end of the covenant. Major theme of the prophets during the time of the decline of the kingdom. They show and contrast God's faithfulness with the unfaithfulness of the nation. God has kept his end of the deal, and he is sovereign in working out history according to his faithfulness to these covenants. And this includes all of the nations. Prophets talk about the nations as well. Yahweh ruled the nations just as much as he ruled Israel and Judah. He was sovereign over the nations as well. The prophets bring out God's word in relationship to judgment on the nation. That's also the nations. That's also a theme of the major books. And some of the minor books specifically deal with some of the nations or some of the peoples like the Ninevites. So they demonstrate God is faithful in history in dealing with not only his people, but with Gentile peoples as well. And they also demonstrate that it's only God, and because of his faithfulness, will ultimately bring righteousness. That's far into the future, primarily. So, sixthly, the prophets serve as God's prosecuting attorneys. Now, under number five, you could say they also serve as God's defense attorneys in terms of God. They defend God's nature and God's character, God's covenants, God's promises. They're defenders. So they're defense attorneys with respect to God. But sixthly, with respect to the nation of Israel, they are prosecuting attorneys, not innovators, not social reformers. What do you have to do to be an attorney? You go to what? You go to the law. And your judgments are based, and your pronouncements are based on law, written law. The prophets go to the Mosaic law and prosecute on the basis of Mosaic law. And what they demonstrate, in fact, turn to Micah, and let's read that passage. What they prosecute is the nation of Israel for violating God's covenants, and particularly the Mosaic. And what they are saying is because Israel has violated the covenants, God is no longer bound to abide by the covenant, although God will keep his end of the deal. But they have no claim on God because they have violated the covenant. And eventually they pronounce the judgment on the nation that sends them not only into exile, but even looks beyond the exile. So they indict the nation, they pronounce judgment, but they usually also extend grace and encouragement for ultimate fulfillment of the covenants. I want you to notice Micah because there's a characteristic of some of these prophetic passages that actually use this courtroom analogy, if you will. Look at chapter 6, and let's uh, read through some of that. Mark, you want to start us off? Read verse 1, Micah 6, 1. Micah 6, 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Rise. In other words, here's the prophet. Pay attention, God is speaking. Go ahead. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Okay, he's calling for witnesses, and he's calling. Okay, give give a, give me your case. Present your case. See the see the courtroom analogy there. Beverly, do you want to read verse two? Here, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has complained as a do you see that? Do you see the language there? The first word, it says, the indictment of the Lord, that's a courtroom word. That's what a judge 
or a prosecuting attorney will bring. He'll bring the indictment. But notice there's a particular word that follows there. Because the Lord has a what? Case. It's very specific. It's a specific legal case. There's what's called reeve proceeding. In other words, this is a courtroom proceeding. In the Hebrew, it's reeve. It's like R-I-V or B with a V sound or a B sound. Reeve. That's a very technical courtroom word that you bring in a court of law in Judaism, or any court, basically. It's a case that you present. And what God is saying here is, I have a case against you, Israel. Remember, covenants are legal documents. I've said that before. Patricia, do you want to read verse 3? People, what have I done to you? How have I Okay, in other words, how have I been a burden upon you? In other words, how have I violated the covenant? How I, have I wronged you in this courtroom case? Who is the wrong, who is the party that is in the wrong? It's not God. God has been faithful. Keith, you want to read number four, verse four? Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Okay. I have been faithful. God has been faithful is what the prophet is saying. He's defending God using God's own words. God has been faithful. And in this case, it doesn't mention the Abrahamic covenant, but basically he brought them out of bondage based on the Abrahamic covenant. God has been faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. Josh, you want to read verse 5? Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. What Balaam, son of Baor, answered him. From a patient road to Miguel, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Okay, he's now going into the details here, and if you read the rest of it, it just gives you more detail concerning this case, this reeve that God has against them, and Micah is serving as the prosecuting attorney. See that? And you see this, you you see the same courtroom scene in Hosea 4. Isaiah begins his whole book this way in chapter 1, developing this case that God has against the nation of Israel. So number 6 is the prophets serve as God's prosecuting attorneys. Number seven, and this is predominantly in the later prophets, after things have gone so far downhill that there's no hope, the nation is going into captivity, and even more so in the prophets of the exile and the prophets afterwards. Number seven is they also give that future messianic kingdom hope. They predict the messianic kingdom and more specifically, the coming of Messiah. So you have more Messianic passages late in the history, but you have a lot in Isaiah, but particularly you have Daniel, you have Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah. So these are your seven functions of prophets, and the writing prophets, you see these elements, and you see some specific characteristics of the genre that they use to communicate God's Word. So number one, they are proclaimers of God's Word. Number two, they are anointers of and judges of kings. They are writers of Scripture. They are enforcers of covenants. Number five, they are God's defense attorneys showing His faithfulness. Six, they're God's prosecuting attorneys bringing a case against the nation. And seventh, they are predictors of the Messianic kingdom. That's the main function of prophets. And in some cases, some to more extent in some situations than in others. So we've looked at the importance. We've looked at the history of prophetic material. We've looked at the occurrence in Scripture of historical writings. I've given you a brief overview of the function of prophets. Let's take a look at the characteristic of prophetic material and let's look at the essence the essence of it 
And let's look up some passages. Mark, do you want to look up uh, Exodus 7? Beverly, Exodus 4. Patricia, Jeremiah 1.7. And also we'll skip to 17. Do you want to do Ezekiel 3? Josh, Amos. Exodus 7.1 is extremely important to give us the essence of what prophecy is all about. The essence of all prophetic material. And the essence of what prophets do. 7.1 Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What's going on there? God has already instructed Moses to go to the children of Israel and proclaim who he is to the children of Israel, descendants of Israel. What does Moses do? I'm not a good speaker. I'm not good in front of people. In fact, I may even have a speech impediment. Who am I to be able to talk to people? What God is doing here is setting something of a pattern of how he works. And what is he doing? What is he saying? Okay, go to your brother. Said to Moses, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh. In other words, you, as far as Pharaoh is concerned, all he's going to see is you. He's not going to see me. You're going to be like God. You're going to be my representative. And you can use Aaron as what? Your mouthpiece. As your mouthpiece. Aaron's going to speak. But Pharaoh is going to know that those words come from you, Moses. Pharaoh's not going to see me, but he's going to see you, and he's going to hear Aaron. Now skip down, or skip back to chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. You get that one, Beverly? There's the passage I was alluding to. Keep reading. In other words, he probably stutters, probably has an impediment, he doesn't have confidence. Keep reading. So the Lord said to him, When this man's mouth, all the ways of him, yet the seeing more of the mind, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send. good enough. You, you, you get the idea there, what a prophet does in essence and the characteristics of his message? You could summarize what a prophet does with a simple word, what? I've already said it. God's mouthpiece. It's illustrated in that chapter 7 passage, and it's made more clear here in the chapter 4 passage. So basically, the prophet is God's mouthpiece. The words that God would speak, he puts in the mouth of the prophet. And the prophet is the one that the people and Pharaoh and whoever is going to hear. That's the essence. And this is illustrated in terms of Jeremiah. You've got that one, Patricia. 1 7 and then read 17. Verse 7, but the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Okay, say whatever I command you. That's the essence of what the prophet does. 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you. Okay. It's a scary thing to be God's prophet. Needs encouragement. 
but the essence of a prophet, God's mouthpiece. Keith, you got what Ezekiel says in chapter 3, read 4, verse 4. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. See the essence there? And if that's not enough, Amos, and by the way, these are not the only ones. You see this in Isaiah, you see this in virtually all the prophets. Josh, you got Amos 3, 8. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who but prophesy? Who can but prophesy once the God God has spoken? The only one that can prophesy is the prophet who heard words. And now he just repeats them. That's the essence of what prophecy is all about. 